Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 273 of Forgotten Classics, where we delve further into Europe with Christina Hardiment and her family in Heidi's Alp. First, though, let's get a podcast highlight going. For all those times when, oh, maybe like recently... I haven't been quite podcasting very much, and you need something else to listen to. The History of Pirates is a new podcast that I enjoy for several reasons. One, it's the history of pirates. Who doesn't understand the appeal of this? Come on, we all love pirates. Or actually, when you're listening, what we discover probably is what we like is the romanticized idea of pirates. Now, that is not what Craig Buddy says. That is my own interpretation after listening to the first few episodes. And really reflecting on how I'd feel if I encountered a pirate. And also, hmm, you know what got brought up? modern-day pirates, and I suddenly flashed back to exactly how regular legitimate people on boats, ships, would have looked at pirates. Not the way we look back at them now. Craig Buddy is the second reason I love this podcast, because this is not what Heather Ordover has now dubbed a procast, which is where it's an actual radio presentation that's been put into podcast form. Obviously, I have nothing against that, but Craig Buddy is what we call a real podcaster. He's an amateur. He has a love of his subject. He is sharing what he loves with us. You can tell he's not been podcasting very long, but that really doesn't matter. He's funny, he's informative, and he's got some great sounding sources. I also like the fact that when he hits some tangent, he'll just go off on it for a little while, like the prow of a boat and figureheads. It came up and he said, here we go. So I now know more about that. He is starting back at the beginning, and that would be where most of us would understand it to be with the old buccaneers, where different countries would actually kind of endorse these pirates and send them off to do their dirty work along with their own navy. However, he then takes us much further back. And this is the part I like, is he loves this so much, he knows that probably as soon as they made boats, there was somebody who wanted to take those boats away. And that would be the beginning of piracy. So there are only three episodes out. Well, the introduction and two episodes. But I encourage you to listen. Go leave a comment. Encourage him. He's on Facebook. He's on, you know, the interwebs. He's in iTunes, which is where I found him, so give him a try. Now, let's get back to our own amateur done-for-the-love-of-the-story podcast. When we left Heidi's Alp, everybody was on board the caravan, on board the ferry, and headed for Holland, where they are going to meet Christina's friend Jane, who's going to help them find their way around while they search for Hans Brinker and the Silver Skates and explore a bit of Holland. So we'll see that along with them. We don't really need a lot more than that for the story since we're just getting started. It's quite a long chapter and at times, I guess because of the time of year or I don't know why this took me so long, 
but sometimes I swear I felt like it was one of those dreams where you're running through molasses. (laughs) I just could not get traction on this thing. However, here we are. Now, this had quite a few British terms, which you guys may all know, but I'm just going to lay them out there in case. Nappies are diapers. Sleeping policemen I think I learned about sleeping policemen in this book, and I always use that term because I just think it's so expressive. That's a speed bump. A lorry is a truck. A virago is a shrew or bad-tempered woman. Ice lollies are popsicles. You know, that's also another wonderfully expressive phrase, like an ice lollipop. Biscuits are cookies. Happy Families, I had to look this one up. It's a game, a card game with picture cards where you're collecting families of four and they're usually based on an occupational type. The description made it sound like Go Fish, which here in America and maybe other places, I don't know, we play with regular decks of cards. And to me, it also sounded like Authors in a way. But when I looked this up, I just loved the names of these people. (laughs) because they're cleverly named, and these are things that kids would enjoy, as well as the grown-ups. For example, since they said they're based on occupations, Bud the florist, Chip the carpenter. Oh, goodness. I love it. And that's it. We should be good for that. Now, I will issue what's going to be tiresomely repetitive, my standard apology for my mispronunciation of foreign words, especially these Dutch place names, which I doggedly kept stopping and looking at pronunciation for. Maybe that's why I felt like I was going through molasses. Anyway, I kept looking it up and there kept being nothing. So my apologies to those of you who are wincing. I did my best. Just try to ignore it. And I would encourage you to go get the book if you're enjoying this. That way you don't have to hear me mispronounce things. Well, it's been way too long, so let's not waste any more time here. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. Heidi's Alp by Christina Hardiment Read by permission of the author. This book is under copyright. Two. Dutch Courage The call to adventure rings up the curtain, always on a mystery of transfiguration, a rite or moment of spiritual passage which, when complete, amounts to a dying and a birth. The familiar life horizon has been outgrown. The old concepts, ideals, and emotional pattern no longer fits. The time for the passing of a threshold is at hand. Typical of the circumstances of the call are the dark forest, the great tree, the bubbling spring, and the loathly underestimated appearance of the carrier of the power of destiny. Joseph Campbell, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, 1968 Five o'clock in the morning. I had somehow assumed sunshine, but the jaws of the car ferry opened to reveal a drowning world. Gray rain poured down, undramatic, unrelenting. Still sleepy from a short squashed night in the tiny four-berth cabin, we looked blearily at our first Dutchman, a customs official with a flat Flemish face. Indifferent, he looked back, 
unaware that he was the herald at the gate of a great new world of romance and fairy. I drove gingerly along the right-hand side of the road for a few hundred yards, then turned the van into the station car park. There was nothing to be seen of the historic hook of Holland, the claw of land that guards the mouth of the Rhine, and from which Van Tromp sailed, broomstick tied to his mast to sweep the English fleet from the seas. Today all is Europort, cranes and hawsers, railway sidings, and flat modern warehouses. The girls stowed away their night things while I laid out a very English breakfast of cornflakes, bread, and jam, and a pot of tea. Fortified, we set off to explore the station. We had arranged to meet Jane, David, and baby Sarah at seven o'clock in the buffet. I carried my copy of Mary Mapis Dodge's Hans Brinker and the Silver Skates as a talisman. It had been difficult to find much enchantment in traditional Dutch children's books. Holland is a matter-of-fact country, too level-headed and sensible to deal in dreams. It took an American to find the flat, wet meadowlands romantic, and even she wrote a book that was intended to be educational as well as entertaining. Mary was one of the three daughters of a freelance scientist and inventor, Professor James J. Mapis. She married William Dodge, a New York lawyer, in 1851. When he died seven years later, leaving her with two small sons, she moved back into her father's house and fitted up a workroom in a deserted farmhouse nearby. She filled it with cast-off furniture and homemade decorations of Florida moss and leaves, and warmed it with a Franklin stove. There she spent her mornings and early afternoons writing, keeping hours as regular as clockwork. After work, she played with the two boys and their friends, tramping the countryside with them to collect botanical specimens, skating in the winter, swimming in the summer, a model mother. The stories she first told to the boys and then wrote down were snapped up by children's magazines, much commended for their high moral tone. Hans Brinker and the Silver Skates, her most famous work, started life as a serial, then grew into a book. The idea came to her after reading Motley's great Rise of the Dutch Republic, but she steeped herself in Dutch history and culture for several years before settling down to write it. The most bizarre fact about the whole worthy undertaking is that Mrs. Dodge had never been to Holland when she wrote the book. She checked all her facts with Dutch friends living in New York. It was only after it was an international bestseller that she went to see its Harlem setting for herself. Once there, she was both amused and flattered when a bookseller offered her a copy as the best way for her son to learn about Dutch life. The plot is a good one, complex and never predictable. It centers round two children, Hans Brinker and his sister Gretel, whose father had been knocked witless some time before by a fall from some scaffolding on the Viermik Sluis while he was repairing a dike. He hovers in the background, to Gretel just, a strange silent man whose eyes followed her vacantly whichever way she turned, but to Hans an agonizing travesty of his memories of, the hearty, cheerful-voiced father, who was never tired of bearing him upon his shoulders, and whose careless song still seemed to echo nearby when he lay awake at night. Their mother earns a scanty living growing vegetables, spinning and knitting. 
In hard times, she even harnesses herself to the tow ropes of barges. But now Hans is old enough to undertake such drudgery in her place. The children work and play in convincingly authentic Dutch style among the dikes that protect their country from the sea. Into the story comes a light-hearted flock of young skaters, fortunate children of the rich burghers of Amsterdam, Leiden, and Harlem. Through their kindly agency, Hans and Gretel qualify to enter for the great race to win the silver skates. Skating also provides Mrs. Dodge with an excuse for taking us for an extremely informative tour of the historic towns linked together by the local canal network. The boys skate to Harlem and hear the great organ of St. Bavo on which Mozart once played. They go to Amsterdam and inspect the paintings in the Rijksmuseum. To The Hague to see the Maritzhuis, to Leiden's Museum of Antiquities. This lengthy fictionalized geography lesson slows the action of the book down considerably, but not irredeemably. Mrs. Dodge interweaves her main plot, the curing of Hans's father by the eccentric Dr. Bokman, a tribute to the famous 17th century Leiden physician, Dr. Boerhaave, into the skating gang's adventures, contrives a mugging and a prodigal son's return, and ends up with a fine feminist finale when Gretel wins the silver skates. The door of the station buffet swung open. With heroic punctuality, David and Jane had driven nearly 200 kilometers from Assen in the northwest and were only 15 minutes late. Puzzled and sleepy, Sarah scanned us from the security of Jane's arms. Susie smiled at her steadily, with none of the nervous inquiry with which adults approach unknown children. Reassured, Sarah gave her one of those smiles that melt right across a baby's face and end up leaving their arms and legs wriggling in ecstasy. They were fast friends from then on. After the Joneses had humanized themselves with coffee and trenchers of ham and rye bread, we braved the rain again. Quantities of infant kit were transferred from David's car to the van. Although I had kept a large locker under the back seat empty for Jane, I had forgotten that one baby needs about as much equipment as four children. As I considered where to put everything, David walked over with two gigantic bags of disposable nappies. I realized I had also forgotten about nappies and all that they entailed. The only answer was to sacrifice the shower room, It had never looked like a convincing proposition anyway. Finally, backs aching from stooping and shoving, we found a place for everything and put, for a few moments at least, everything in its place. We strapped Sarah's push chair to the back of the passenger seat so that she could be tied in facing backwards, a very safe place to be. Sarah had other ideas. I trailed through the rain in David's wake, trying to change my reflexes to expect cars to hit me from the right and not the left. She howled with a determination that could not be ignored. Guiltily, Jane unstrapped her and crouched amidships, holding on to her as tightly as possible. It was only ten kilometers or so to Vassenar, but we felt every meter. Checking into the Duinrel campsite was a simple matter, and as it was both midweek and off-season, we had a small hedged enclosure almost to ourselves. I rummaged under the seat for the electricity cable, plugged Bertha proudly into the area terminal, and looked around. 
The rain had eased off, and the girls were eager to head for the famous amusements, most of them free to campers on the site. They dived into a deep sea of brightly colored plastic balls, swung on pulleys across rivers into an animated world of gigantic insect puppets, scaled the highest point in Holland, all of 50 meters, to rocket down a metal bobsleigh run, and saturated each other in the bright red pneumatic bubbles of the water dodgem cars. David, Jane, and I were not feeling quite so confident. We found a beer hall and ordered a round of Kroos, the delicious Dutch beer sold in thick brown bottles with wire and china stoppers. It cost less than the children's Coca-Colas and was served with little paper cartons of freshly fried chips, mayonnaise dolloped on the top. From the timbered walls, cavaliers laughed mockingly as David planned his route home. As he left, Jane looked distinctly insecure. We went back to the van for fast food, a quiche brought from home for us, fish fingers, and frozen peas for the children. Cowardly, perhaps, but I didn't think they were quite ready for the 50 different varieties of cheese and salami on which the Dutch seemed to survive. No point in overdoing the culture shock. Then it was time for the greatest of Duenrel's attractions, the Tropical Wave Pool. Initially, the technology was daunting. Instead of a ticket, we were given a plastic card that led us through a magnetized gate. Once we had changed, the children, completely bemused at the challenge presented by the complicated plastic hanger-come-sack to which they were supposed to anchor their clothes, the same card had to be pushed into a locker to release its key. It stayed there until we returned, programmed to time us and charge a secondary entry fee if we were a second over the allotted two hours. Eventually, we woman-handled the four children and Sarah, fast asleep in her buggy now, through the powerfully disinfectant showers and onto Flamingo Beach itself. Jane and I slumped in the jacuzzi while the girls explored the different pools, some hot, some cold, one bubbling like a watery volcano, another leading outside and steaming into the chilly air before winding back in again. A five-meter-high vertical chute dropped Tilly like a stone into a bottomless pool. An enormous water gun allowed Daisy to vent her spleen on Ellie. Susie could wallow under a gently weeping water willow. Upstairs, we could have sweltered in a sauna room. But the greatest attraction of all was the mighty water slide. The girls were already at its base, looking with awe at two enormous tubes out of which people were shooting like minnows spinning through a river sluice. Together, we climbed a hundred feet or so, up a yellow-painted metal staircase to the top of the tower, looking out of the windows at the great blue and green pipes twisting about and up and down. We could hear screeches and howls, see shadowy bodies swirling helplessly downwards. Above the entrance to the blue tube was a white-fanged shark over the green, a vicious barracuda. A stream of water was gushing down them both. I donned the steady-eyed smile with which all mothers veil their secret misgivings and urged the children down blue shark ahead of me. One by one, they disappeared into what was then the longest water slide in the world, nearly 300 meters of uncontrollable freefall. I heard their shrieks die away. Then it was my turn. I lay back and gave myself up for lost. 
the slippery glass sides of the tube arched all around as I spun faster and faster downwards, screaming uncontrollably, flung up around the bends, then impelled forwards into a bumpy straight like a spider washed away in a waste pipe. Even though I had left a prudent gap before setting off, my weight meant I caught the children up. Tilly screamed as my feet came onto her shoulders, then discovered to her delight that together we went even faster. At last the pool came into sight, and we were spat out into it, giggling hysterically. We forgot the sauna and raced up the stairs to try the green barracuda. For rapid succession of stomach-churning fear and dizzy triumph, the water chutes were unbeatable. Time passed very quickly. Sarah woke up and had a little paddle, but was not entirely sure that she liked it. Held close to Jane in the warm bubbles of the jacuzzi, she relaxed and grinned, but the trauma of getting changed was too much for her. And for us. Keys and cards got lost and muddled, towels trailed in the drain, anoraks were left in cubicles. The clock ticked inexorably on. My temper shortened as I envisaged six more entrance fees. By the time we battled through the turnstiles and got back to the van, we were all tired, wet, cold, and bemused. It soon became clear that having a baby aboard was going to introduce new tensions. Sarah grabbed at the fridge controls, mashed a banana into the carpet, strutted importantly at the table in front of her newfound audience of receptive older children, and finally did a catapult fall onto the floor just as Jane turned her back to stop the milk from boiling over. Bed for everybody seemed the easiest solution. The three sardines overhead fell sound asleep as soon as their heads hit their tiny pillows. Tilly sat up for a little longer in her corner of the double berth, reading Hans Brinker like a model daughter, and next to her Jane rocked Sarah to and fro. I arranged a foam mattress across the cab, patting the pit between the seats with books and the typewriter and wishing the gear stick could be unscrewed. Feeling a little old maidish, I boiled the kettle for my hot water bottle, poured the dregs of our evening pot of tea into a thermos, and retired behind the curtain that divided the cab from the body of the van. Despite the repeated assurances we gave each other, both Jane and I approached the night with dread. When I was woken in the small hours by Sarah's crying, my morale was at rock bottom. I remembered Jane's frank admission that Sarah was not great at night, and wondered how on earth I could have cheerfully dismissed it. Sleep, long, undisturbed hours of it, seemed the most necessary and desirable thing at that moment. Nightmare visions of how much could go wrong in the next two weeks began to run through my head. Why on earth was I risking interrupted nights and days tyrannized by the unpredictable needs of a one-year-old just when my own children were old enough to be cooperative? But new hope rose with the dawn. When I looked at my watch at seven o'clock, I realized that Sarah had woken only once to be quickly cozied back to sleep after a breastfeed that had more of comfort than sustenance in it. Officially, she's weaned, of course. Jane had whispered across to me, but it's hard to explain to her that it's over. The others were still sleeping soundly. No one had complained of kicks, colds, or Sarah's cries. Though the thermos was a failure, my hot water bottle was still warm and friendly. 
Sarah raised her head from her favorite corner of the duvet and looked across at me with a king-sized grin of recognition. Disarmed completely, I grinned back. A new alliance had been formed. After a hot cup of tea and a bracing walk to the luxuriously appointed shower block, the worried zombie of the small hours was a brisk and efficient captain once again. It was mid-afternoon before I could persuade the girls to leave Duinrel. Sheer exhaustion finally slowed them up enough for me to corral them into the van for tea and speed northwards to Harlem. Sarah had dropped into a deep sleep in her pushchair so Jane could sit beside me in the cab and provide a running commentary. The neatness and dapper domesticity of Dutch life struck us immediately. White-painted gables and window frames trimmed the dark brick houses like icing on gingerbread. Orange awnings curled crisply above wooden balconies. White lace fringed to the windows, but the real curtains were the pot plants on the sills. We saw flowers everywhere edging the highways, hanging from lampposts, perched on petrol pumps. Instead of slowing cars down by sleeping policemen, the Dutch have low troughs of tulips that jut into residential streets and force cars to trail through them in a slow slalom. Dutch towns spend more on plants than they do on street lighting, Jane told us. And look out for the cyclists. They have priority over the cars, and they take it. You lose your license straight away if you hit them. I was having trouble with the traffic. The Dutch have a disconcerting habit of ignoring red lights completely if they're in a hurry. Even more worrying was the aggressive attitude of the cyclists. Although given generous chunks of road space, both in towns and in the country, they are clearly imperialists, eager to grab even more. At road junctions, they attacked from all sides, leaving Bertha crawling cautiously through them like a muddled bear in a swarm of bees. I began to wish we were on bikes ourselves. If we'd been going no further than Holland, we could well have done just that. A countryside network of cycle tracks and the flatness of the land make biking an attractively cheap and healthy way of seeing the sights. The bikes themselves were generally heavier, more business-like machines than our flashy chrome lightweights. They were built to carry whole families. The girls watched respectfully as a large Dutchman with bulging calves pedaled past us, a toddler strapped into a basketwork seat in front of the handlebars, his wife sitting side-saddle on the carrier. "'It's a much more accepted thing to go out for an evening on a bike,' said Jane, pointing to a girl who was careering across our bows in an elaborate outfit, evidently party-bound. A dark-suited businessman overtook her, his briefcase strapped neatly down over the crossbar, keeping fit and saving time and money. Motorists seemed to be very definitely second-class citizens in the eyes of Dutch cyclists. We were heading for Harlem to retrace the footsteps of Mary Mapus Dodge's sightseeing boys in Hans Brinker. It was now the bulb-growing season, and a lurid patchwork of unlikely color combinations stretched from horizon to horizon, pink by yellow, red by indigo, orange by blue, Roadside stalls were selling huge Hawaiian-style garlands of flowers, solid ropes of daffodil, hyacinth, and tulip heads to sling across the bonnet of one's car or lorry. "'I think we should buy the van one,' said Daisy. "'It would make it look more glamorous.' Like me, she was a little offended by the staidness of our conveyance. 
so we stopped at one of the stalls, examined the garlands carefully, and selected the brightest of all to crown Bertha's stubby nose. We spent the night in a national park campsite of Denlaken at Sandvoort, deep in the shrubby dunes that edged the Dutch coast, then drove into Harlem itself in the morning. We were heading for the gigantic organ in the great church of St. Bavo. Tilly and Daisy had both enjoyed seeing Amadeus, and the news that Mozart had actually played on this organ added to its attraction. Fortunately for short legs and tempers, we managed to park literally outside the side door of St. Bavo. We walked through a low whitewashed passage dotted with old delft tiles and entered the church itself, strikingly tall and thin. Its coolness, the great rectangular paving slabs, and the simplicity and emptiness of the place combined to make us feel like ants crawling across the floor of an old-fashioned still room. The organ itself was totally incongruous. Great tides of gilded Baroque flourishes embracing flanks on flanks of silvery pipes. The main balcony, on which the infant Mozart once sat, bowed toward us like the poop of a great galleon, supported by a bosomy goddess of harmony and her attendant cherubs. Better timing would have organized an arrival coinciding with a rehearsal, so that we could have heard the great swell of sound, which rushes forward to meet the boys in the story. Louder and louder it grew, until it became like the din and roar of some mighty tempest, or like the ocean surging on the shore. In the midst of the tumult, a tinkling bell was heard. One answered, then another, and the storm paused as if to listen. The bells grew bolder. They rang out loud and clear. Other deep-toned bells joined in. They were tolling in solemn concert. Ding, dong, ding, dong. The storm broke forth again with redoubled fury, gathering its distant thunder. The boys looked at each other but did not speak. What was that? Who screamed? What screamed? That terrible musical dream? Was it man or demon? Or was it some monster shut up behind that carved brass frame, behind those great silver columns, some despairing monster begging, screaming for freedom? It was the Vox Humana. Not bad for someone who had never heard it. The passage grows increasingly purple, but Mrs. Dodge had boys of her own. Just as Ben's soul grows dizzy with a strange joy, there is a timely interruption. A friend tugs at his sleeve. How long are you going to stay here, blinking at the ceiling like a sick rabbit? It's high time we started. A small hand tugged at my sleeve. Is it lunchtime yet? Susie asked hopefully. Easily, I noticed, looking guiltily at my watch. We bought postcards of the keyboard at which Mozart once sat, considered a tape of the organ in action, but decided nothing so big could be captured in something so small, and left in search of sustenance. Before we could eat, we had to restock the van's larder. The grocery store, which we found by a happy chance in tiny Baker Street, we weren't exactly lost, just orienteering, was a very different style of emporium from the Anodyne International Supermarket at Duinrel. There were no impregnable plastic packets or familiar cartons of Kellogg's. I bought ready-peeled new potatoes and freshly chopped raw vegetables for an instant lunch, Big loaves of subtly flavored bread, slices of Edom in a thick yellow rind, 
great bars of bitter chocolate, cheap fruit juices, and beer. A contented munching succeeded by light snores from the youngest girls punctuated the short drive to Himstead, just south of Harlem. Once Harlem Mere was an important inland sea, washing the walls of Leiden and Amsterdam. One of the best stories in Hans Brinker was Mrs. Dodge's spirited description of Spanish galleons sailing across it to cut off Harlem's supply lines and force the city to surrender. Two thousand of the Dutch garrison walked the plank here, where cows were meandering among the buttercups in lush polder grass. Now Harlem Mere is a ghost sea, drained by Cornish Newcomen engines in the 19th century. At Heemstead, there was a museum of draining history, which I thought would be a good way of bringing home to the children the accomplishment of the Dutch in their battle against the sea. A nice anticipation of the most famous story in Hans Brinker, the tale of the little boy who put his finger in the dike. We parked the van at Kruquist Dyke and enthused over the Strawberry Hill Gothic of the elegantly castellated pump house. Tilly and Daisy looked up apathetically. They were very happy doodling with the brush-tipped pens I'd packed for a rainy day. Fair enough, it was a rainy day, but I was feeling ambitious. One measly organ simply wasn't enough to compensate for the self-indulgence of Duenrel. This museum was just the sort of place that Mrs. Jenks, Mrs. Hayes, Mrs. Prest, and Mrs. Stowe would expect to hear about back at school. We slipped Sarah, still sleeping, into her pushchair, then tried to rally the girls. Susie was hidden in the deepest recess of the upper berth and had to be pulled out upside down, a protesting dormouse. I can't find my shoes. Ellie never could. I don't want to come. Daisy had detected an attempt to improve her mind. Tilly descended to low cunning. I want to stay here and get on with Hans Brinker. At last we sallied forth to queue up for the tickets behind a serious-minded band of German tourists. At least I queued up. The others disappeared en masse into the lavatory, since there was only one cubicle, and the novelty of a roomy lavatory after the cramped porta-potty was great. This took about half an hour. Then I handed Jane an English version of the efficiently photocopied information sheets about the exhibition and attempted to proceed as recommended. Arrows pointed us firmly toward a long line of black and white photographs, each revealing marginally more land reclamation than the last. Ellie had a better idea. Oh, look, Susie, a windmill. Come on, let's go and look at it. No, Ellie, that's the wrong way. We've got to look at these photos first. Then you'll see the point of the windmills. Now in this one you can see how Holland used to be. Very wet. My words tailed away as Ellie and Susie ducked under the elbows of the Germans and disappeared. Cursing, not entirely silently, I retrieved them. After the first five pictures had only got us as far as the early Stone Age, I admitted defeat. Flipping through the text and pictures like an early Chaplin movie, I gave a speeded-up account of Holland's great achievement and moved on to the excellent models of windmills and steam engines. Our bosoms swelled with national pride at the sight of the well-known names of Watt, Bolton, and Stevenson. I talked of kettles. A stuffed muskrat fascinated Tilly. 
She refused to believe that anything so soft, sweet, and furry could be as much of a pest as the diagram of its energetic burrowing through dyke walls made out. Ellie was quite mesmerized by a dramatic 19th century engraving of a man being washed into cascading floodwaters at the breach of a large dike. She returned to it again and again. What really worried her was another man depicted as watching the accident. Why doesn't he jump in and save him? she demanded. How can he just stand there? By now, Sarah had woken up and decided it was time for a little exercise. Soon, Susie and she were playing crawling tag in and out of people's feet. Daisy was visibly yawning, and there was a sense of lost direction. Increasingly desperate, I announced there would be a quiz on what they had seen when they got back to the van. Tilly and Daisy brightened competitively and started following arrows and reading notices. Ellie burst into tears. But I haven't seen anything. I don't understand at all. Sarah saw an intriguing floor-level kinetic model of Polder Reclamation through the ages and was advancing on the water bubbling through the tiny sluices. Susie had disappeared in the opposite direction and could be glimpsed closing in on a very frail and ancient-looking model windmill. I decided it was time to cut and run. You can all choose a postcard to send to your classes when we've finished going round. Progress became embarrassingly fast. Instead of urging on the team, I had to drag them back. But you haven't seen the engine room. Look at all these lovely iron levers and pivots. That is a pivot, isn't it, Jane? It looks as if it ought to move. Tilly, look out of the windows. No, Daisy, don't lean out. And you can see the, uh, arms. That's how the piston things pulled the water up and down, I think. I retreated into the stilted English text for further enlightenment. But by the time I had got my basic hydraulics straight, there wasn't a child to be seen. They were battling for postcards in the hall. How on earth do teachers manage? I asked Jane. We were back in the van, sipping tea in the cab. All was peace. The children were at the table writing postcards. Sarah was wedged upright between Tilly and Daisy, proudly wielding a felt tip in imitation. She pointed out comfortingly that children reserve their best behavior for their teachers that we had walked around the quaint canal-side houses of Harlem for at least an hour that morning, and that just being in a new place was pretty tiring. I began to realize the need to make major allowances for the difference in pace between children and adults. We move forward leisurely and implacably like tortoises. They dart on ahead like hares, then drop exhausted with unpredictable suddenness. A turn-of-the-century childcare expert, Cecil Cunningham, got it exactly right in his 1913 Nursery Notes for Mothers. The child's nervous system is in constant fluctuation. It cannot stand sustained pressure, he pointed out. It needs frequent change of lessons, posture, or activities. Adults, on the other hand, like to concentrate on one task for one time. This is why a child and adult find each other's society irksome if it is maintained for any length of time. His conclusion was small comfort to me and Jane. Women can adapt themselves better than men to this curious rate of oscillation, and nature has arranged that the mother and not the father should manage the nursery. No virago reprint there. Tea refreshed us all. But as soon as we drove off along the long dike, Sarah decided to fall asleep. 
Jane grimaced. A nap now meant routine destroyed once again and the chances of a long, quiet night reduced. But sometimes a present good is more attractive than a prospective one. As we headed north again, bypassing Harlem and hacking through little villages, land and sea seemed to be interchangeable, a network of waterways. At one point, a huge merchant ship loomed above the road, apparently gliding through the fields. Beamy barges with plump bows and curled-over sterns swanned along under full sail. Jane had gone into the possibility of hiring one to explore the northern mirrors, and we promised ourselves that one day we would do just that. For the moment, we were concentrating on fingers. The best-known story in Hans Brinker is the story of the boy who puts his finger in the dike and so saves Harlem from flooding. Every child in Holland learns this story at his mother's knee, but people are usually hazy about the details. Mrs. Dodge corrects all that. The hero of Harlem, as she draws him, is a sunny-haired boy of gentle disposition, son of one of the sluicers whose business it is to open and close the gates that regulate the canal waters. Walking back after delivering some cakes to an old blind man who lived far on the other side of the dike, he hears a trickling of water. He looked up and saw that a tiny stream was flowing through a small hole in the dike. Quick as a flash, he saw his duty. Throwing away his flowers, the boy clambered up the heights until he reached the hole. His chubby finger was thrust in almost before he knew it. The flowing was stopped. Ah, he thought with a chuckle of boyish delight, the angry waters must stay back now. Harlem shall not be drowned while I am here. Night falls. His mother decides he must be staying the night with blind Jansen. The chubby cherub grows chillier and chillier. How can we know the sufferings of that long and fearful watch? What falterings of purpose? What childish terrors came over the boy as he thought of the warm little bed at home, of his parents, his brothers and sisters, then looked into the cold, dreary night? If he drew away that tiny finger, the angry waters, grown angrier still, would rush forth and never stop until they had swept over the town. No, he would hold it there till daylight, if he lived. He was not very sure of living. What did this strange buzzing mean? And then knives that seemed to be pricking and piercing him from head to foot. He was not certain now that he could draw his finger away, even if he wished to. Luckily, a clergyman happens along at daybreak. "'In the name of wonder, boy!' he exclaimed. "'What are you doing there?' "'I am keeping the water from running out,' was the simple reply. "'Tell them to come quick!' My Dutch friends in Oxford, the Schulers, had been a little embarrassed when I asked them about this story. "'Of course it is just a symbol. No one in Holland believes it is actually true,' they had said. After the dramatic picture she had seen in the pumping station museum, Ellie certainly didn't. No childish finger could ever have stemmed the fury of those rising waters. It is probably significant that Mrs. Dodge has it read out in an English school, and she is careful to get one of her Dutch boys to explain that it symbolized, "'The spirit of the country. Not a leak can show itself anywhere, either, in its politics, honor, or public safety, that a million fingers are not ready to stop at any cost.'" 
but I heard a rumor of a statue to the memory of the heroic little boy, and the Dutch tourist office had confirmed that this was true. It was at Sparndam, a tiny village just north of Harlem. It was put there early this century in response to the demand from American and English tourists who had read their Hans Brinker and wanted to see where it all happened. Well informed after my spirited reading of the story the night before, the girls were very amused to read in the tourist guide that the statue was of Hans Brinker himself. We decided to make a small pilgrimage to see it. Bertha rumbled along the single main street of Sparndam late in the afternoon. As the road bridged two small mirrors, we saw the statue. A puckish bronze urchin crouched with finger extended over a small mound. In the background on either side of the road were boats, moored or pottering along on some small business. The rain had eased off. A huge sky tumbling with billowy clouds dwarfed the flat landscape. Masts were the tallest things to be seen. We jumped out, eager to scoff, but found the legend, engraved in both Dutch and English, sublimely evasive. Dedicated to our youth to honor the boy who symbolizes the perpetual struggle of Holland against the water. It was a peaceful place and well worth the detour. We did the decent thing and photographed ourselves around the plinth, just like proper tourists. The sun shone out suddenly, approving our homage. Our original plan at this point was to camp a little further north at Alkmaar, a small town with a legendary cheese market where every Friday traditionally dressed cheesemakers trundled deep yellow cheese footballs around on their carved barrows. Jane's researches had discovered a skating museum close to Alkmaar Station in Prince Alexander Strait, part of it the Hans Brinker Museum that had once been in Schirmerhorn, she had phoned up to discover that it was mainly concerned with skating history and that special arrangements had to be made to visit it except on every fourth Saturday of the month, which this wasn't. Alternative attractions were the world's largest flower show at Kuchenhof or the early morning flower auction at Alsmere. Dolphins beckoned from Sandwurt, windmills from the open-air folk museum at Zanseshans, the prevalent mood in Bertha was not receptive to any of these schemes. We did get to Alkmaar, but as it was Saturday, the cheese market was over and the skating museum not yet open. The skies had darkened once again, slowly and indecisively circling a small roundabout near the town's pedestrian precinct. We glimpsed enticing gables, an ancient square. Alone, one might have nipped out for a cup of coffee and a dash of atmosphere. Hmm, but the prospect of finding shoes and jerseys, packing up spare nappies, bottling biscuits for Sarah, and turfing five sleepy children out into the drizzle was not an attractive one. Harlem had been a success. They had admired the ornate houses, enjoyed the freshly made donuts, the great Baroque organ, the shops. A tourist should avoid promiscuity, I told myself primly. Let Harlem remain uncluttered by afterthoughts, a fine, simple picture of a traditional Dutch city. The roads were broad and empty. Looking at the map for somewhere to camp, I suddenly realized that it was only 220 kilometers, between three and four hours, to Jane's house in Assen. 
Although Sarah was thriving and the girls, particularly Susie, who had never had a younger sister to baby, were all enjoying her, the last three nights had not been altogether peaceful. The weather had failed us. A pit stop for refit and sort out would refresh us all. We had planned to stop at Assen anyway on Sunday night. Why not use it as a base for exploration of the Dutch scene? Jane talked of traffic parks where the girls could learn the continental rules of the road in vintage pedal cars, of cheese farms and clog makers. I thought of long, hot baths and solitude. I had always predicted that we would need a break from the close quarters of the van. Maybe it was better to have it sooner rather than later. Bertha took wing and flew northwards toward the Offlitzdijk. We had chosen the road across the Offlitzdijk rather than the southern road to Ossen because it looked, on the map, such a dramatic drive, half an hour of watery horizons. The old Zyder Z was finally reduced to lake status as the Isselmere in 1932. Building the 30-kilometer-long dam that reclaimed it from the North Sea was the fulfillment of a very old Dutch dream. In 1667, Hendrik Stevens drew up a plan to link the whole chain of islands off the Friesland coast, but it wasn't until 1891 that a feasible plan was finally drawn up by Cornelius Lely. He witnessed the beginning of his scheme in 1920, but died in 1929, three years too soon to see it completed. At a stroke, the Afflitzdijk, literally the closing-off dike, cut down that stretch of coastline from 300 to 45 kilometers, making flood damage within the new Isselmeer a far less frequent problem and enabling polder reclamation within the mere to increase dramatically. When they reclaimed one of the largest polders, they found an airplane settled on the mud, Jane told me. It had crashed during the First World War. You can still see it now, set in the middle of a grassy field. We passed the statue of Cornelius Lely gazing out at the fulfillment of his vision and set out across the dike itself. All we could see just then was a dead straight road narrowing into infinity and lots of water. Far away on the mirror, Jane and I could see the white wings of sailing barges, distant birds of passage. Bertha suddenly seemed suffocatingly sedate. This doesn't look very safe complained Ellie as we drove along between a high wall that only just hid the North Sea and a grassy bank that ran down the shore of the Isselmere. There isn't even a fence. The repeated references to flooding had unsettled her. I don't think she ever really trusted Holland, despite, or perhaps because of, my efforts to explain the wonder of it all. Nearly seven o'clock, supper time. We parked the van at the first of the stopping points that punctuate the Afflitzdijk, climbed the observation tower, and looked eastward. The wind was whipping across the dike, and the sea had a mean, steely look. At close quarters, the mirror looked equally unattractive. The sailing barges were healing hard. Perhaps, at this time of year, we were better off in Bertha, now pungent with the smell of frying bacon and deliciously warm after the keen wind outside. Over supper, we looked at dramatic aerial photographs in the Guide to the Dyke, which we had bought in a souvenir kiosk halfway up the tower. They showed the sea swirling greedily through ever-shrinking gaps, until at last, to a salute from hundreds of ships' hooters, the dike was ceremoniously completed on 28th May, 1932, just here where we were parked. Ellie shifted uneasily. 
Sarah, wrestling with her first whole green bean, nearly choked. It was time to move on. Further across the dike, we passed a restaurant and a garage. At the next halt, there was even a campsite. Tempted, I looked back at the crew. They had tired of dike watching and were deep in their books and drawing. Sarah had dropped off to sleep in Jane's arms. Jane, too, was dozing. I remembered the wind and the rain and decided not to draw their attention to it. In warmer weather and with a windsurfer on the roof, it would have been a wonderful place to halt for the night and sail in the sunset or the dawn. I drove along the empty road with only the seabirds for company. That suited me fine. I was already finding the continual compromise between my ambitious plans and the children's needs wearing. And this was only day four. At the same time, I was also beginning to appreciate the realism My desire to see everything there was to see in any given place was, in fact, an absurd one. We might indeed see the sights, but what would remain of them except a muddled memory, like the old tourist joke of, Where are we? If it's Friday, it's Paris. When the pencil-thin horizon of Friesland came into sight, a low, dark streak under leaden skies, Ellie crept out of the mound of sleepers and wedged herself companionably behind my seat. She offered to while away the time by telling me the story of Little Claws and Big Claws. She told it very well, but I was a little disconcerted by her familiarity with it. I'd just been reading Bruno Bettelheim's theory in his The Uses of Enchantment that children find a great deal of satisfaction in fairy stories that express their unconscious wishes and fears. What was it about Big Claws and Little Claws that fascinated her? The gory dispatch of the grandmother? Obviously a mother symbol, Bettelheim would say. Or the triumph of the weak over the strong? Such a materialistic tale, too. Why couldn't she have a simple and understandable affection for Cinderella? Two hours later, we stopped at the Joneses' canal-side house in Ossin. David came out to welcome us, and Jane thankfully handed Sarah over to him, then shepherded the girls inside. Their house was once gutted by a fire, and its former owners took the opportunity to play with its space in a completely new way. Outside, it looks like a neat Dutch version of a 1930s semi. Inside, we felt as if we were in an eggshell. All was open plan, with a spiral stair down to David's computer room and up to the bedrooms above. A low sofa curled round the wall, below the bay window and up to the hearth. The back wall was simply glass. Leaning back on the sofa, toasting my toes in front of the fire, and with a glass of Glenlivet in my hand, I had to admit that it hadn't just been Jane who had been feeling the strain. Sunday was a leisurely day. Jane and David took the girls off to the promised traffic park and gave them lunch in a pancake house, fat Dutch pancakes stuffed with savory fillings. I sorted out the van and processed laundry, reveling in the complete silence slapping me round. Then at last there was time to read. How had Hans Andersen reacted to Holland? The people live half in water like amphibians he noted as he passed through Amsterdam. We passed over a kind of bank between the open North Sea and the Sea of Harlem, and I wondered at the great enterprise of pumping out a sea. 
a country he respected then, but not one he dawdled in. Within a day he had taken a Dutch steamer, a true snail of a ship, to England, where by contrast his imagination was quite set alight by the self-important bustle of London, the city of cities. Next day we meandered around the large modern shopping precinct, amused to explore the Dutch versions of C&A, Etam, and M&S modes. One of the major attractions of the trip, as far as the girls were concerned, was our issuing them with an outrageous five pounds a week pocket money each. Normally, they got slightly less than that between them. But we felt that they needed some degree of financial independence, so that they could both enjoy the security of silver jingling in their pockets and be able to be generous. It would also make them conscious of foreign currencies and improve their arithmetic. We dictated that the money could be used for drinks and ice lollies, but not for sweets. The normal ruling of 15p sweet money on Saturday morning would be maintained. Their reactions to wealth were quite different. The two older girls spent almost all their money on carefully chosen presents for their school friends, but Tilly spent hers fast and joyfully, then wondered if she had bought the right things while Daisy hung on to hers, only parting with it when she saw something that was exactly what she wanted. Ellie established a happy medium between small treasures and ephemera, but found the whole business an agonizing exercise in decision-making. Susie was a disappointment. She developed an unerring eye for Taiwan tat, and I had to retire hurt from several ill-starred confrontations in supermarkets. She was right. The money had been given to her, and I had no business to dictate the spending of it. But I couldn't help trying. There were so many snappy goods in the Dutch shops that failures in taste and style were few. Ellie and Susie bought gaily painted clogs, a little nonplussed to see that they were stamped Made in Italy. Tilly and Ellie found white-framed sunglasses with Snoopy and Mickey Mouse perched archly at the corners. Jane let them each choose a hand-painted tile from Delft in an Aladdin's cave of a china shop. I picked up a comfort object, a small yellow mug painted with a sketchy green and brown farmyard scene and a bold black cock. It stayed close at hand for the rest of the journey, miraculously unbroken. In Miro, a gigantic Asen supermarket, the children sat in a row in front of a cartoon video while Jane and I mooned along the aisles like Stepford wives. Basic essentials and a few treats. Twenty packets of good cheap Douay Egbert coffee. Handfuls of rainbow-colored garden flares. Lots of biscuits. I tried to buy the wooden children's skates that Jane had told me were still worn there by beginners, but such an enterprise in early May was looked on as lunacy. Never mind, I'll get the boy next door to show you his, said Jane. Later that day, Peter brought round a pair of wooden skates, metal blades set in wooden frames, which can be strapped with long woven red ribbons over any boots. He also brought his speed skates, which he handled as reverently as Gretel must have treated her hard-earned prize. The gleaming silver blades were extraordinarily long, the boots highly polished black leather. In skates like these, Dutch champions achieve speeds up to 80 miles an hour. Jane asked Peter a question in Dutch. He nodded and talked rapidly to her for a few minutes. 
She explained that he had been telling her about the Elfstedden Tocht, the Eleven Towns race. It sounded like a good parallel to the Hans Brinker race, although the prize is a gold medal, not silver skates. It dates from a mid-15th century Friesland tradition. The young farmers used to skate to the eleven main towns of Friesland by canal and have a drink in each. In 1909, it was formalized into a 125-mile-long race. Competitors set out before dawn, and the last skaters arrive late at night. The winners are usually home for lunch. The problem with the Elfstedendacht has been its popularity. Since over 16,000 participants are expected to take part these days, the ice has to be very thick for the race to take place at all. There have only been 12 races since 1909. But this year, after a tantalizing will-it-won't-it few weeks, the frost bit deep enough for the first race in 23 years to take place. Jane and David, like everyone in Holland who wasn't on the ice, had spent the day watching it on television, and luckily for us had made a video of the highlights. The girls and I sat on the long sofa and watched the five o'clock start at which 16,000 pairs of shoes were abandoned. No one attempted to find their own afterwards. Then we saw the urgent chaos of the checkpoints, the clowns, young and old, and the real racers, the champs in their bright, skin-tight skating suits. Bent forward, one behind the other to cut down the wind resistance, hands clasped behind their backs, legs pushing sideways with long, gliding strokes, they mesmerized us. We found ourselves swaying to the rhythm they set up. Making the race competitive is a modern idea, resented by many of the participants. In 1940 and 1956, the first five skaters held hands as they crossed the finishing line in protest, only to find themselves disqualified. The country needed heroes, in the opinion of the 322-strong organizing committee, and certainly today the winner of the Elfstedden Tocht has rather more status in Friesland than Queen Beatrix herself. The 1929 winner lost two toes through frostbite. He had them pickled and kept them on the mantelpiece as a trophy. Whether it was the effect of the race or a restlessness of their own, I don't know. But as we switched off the television, Tilly and Daisy turned to me with a concerted determination. It's nice here, but it's too like England. We want to see more foreign places. There doesn't seem to be much magic in Holland. I thought we were supposed to be camping, not living in houses. They were right, of course. The Dutch are so neatly and intelligently organized that there seems little room there now for the old legends and stories that Mary Mapis Dodge chronicled so lovingly. Hans Andersen hadn't lingered there for long, and nor should we. It was time to move on. One way of ensuring Sarah slept was to drive through the night. We talked things over and decided to set off after supper, drive into the night through the inconvenient spur of Germany that interrupted our intended progress to Denmark, and stop when I felt sleepy. We threw ourselves into a frenzy of packing. Jane had so many good children's books that we could solve the problem of running out of reading matter by moving all our books into the boot of David's car to rejoin us at Hamlin, and filling Bertha's shelves with Jane's instead. As alternative occupations, Jane produced knitting wool and needles, black paper to cut out in Anderson-style silhouettes, 
and a Dutch variety of happy families, trolls instead of butchers and bakers. David, who has a fine intuitive grasp of essentials, pressed the rest of the two-liter bottle of Glenlivet into my hands. After a very English feast of beef and roast potatoes, we got the children into their night things, settled them down in the van, and took off into the unknown night once more. So we're well and truly begun. And I love the family dynamic as they all get used to each other as the mother, Christina Hardiment, gets used to the idea that the kids aren't just going to go along here. I mean, the thing in the museum where everything's falling apart sounds so familiar. And I think most parents have to learn that is that you're just going to be able to do so much. So you have to pick and choose carefully. In fact, I think I've mentioned it before that when we traveled with our kids to Europe, I feel like one of the genius things that we did was any place that we were at for more than a couple of days, everybody in the family got to choose their activity that we would kind of parcel out through the days or give everybody their own day. And so in Paris, everybody had looked through the guidebook and thought about it. That's how we wound up seeing the Doll Museum not something you're really going to see in Paris unless you have your eight or nine or ten year old however old Rose was who suddenly has that catch her eye so not only does it give them a sense of the participation but it takes you places you would never have thought of before in terms of this story I have read Hans Brinker and the Silver Skates it was so long ago that I don't even remember what exactly happened I remembered some of the high points that she hit when she was talking about it, but I remember it being an exciting story, so it might be worth trying if you're interested. I bet LibriVox has it, and Project Gutenberg. And in terms of the story Big Claws and Little Claws by Hans Christian Andersen, I don't remember that story. I'm sure I've read it a long time ago because I'd read all of Andersen's stories at one point. But every time I tried to look for a summary, the story looked way too complicated. Nobody was giving a two or three line summary of the story. So there are quite a few sources for it. When you look on the internet, pick one and go read it. I did love that insecurity, though, because that's the kind of thing that once somebody puts the idea into your head of these things all mean something when someone likes these stories, then you get all insecure. Whereas really, the idea is sometimes people just like those stories. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. (laughs) There were a few phrases that I caught in here when I was proofing it that I did not actually notice when I was giving terms before. So the boot of a car is the trunk. And anorak, I thought was a raincoat. But when I looked it up, it turns out it looks like a light parka. Not too padded out, you know, but still a jacket like that. And a traffic park, it occurred to me, I also did not know what it was. And on Wikipedia... And we will see if this is accurate. You can tell me if it isn't. It says a traffic park or children's traffic park is a park in which children can learn the rules of the road. Which in our household 
we did through children observing you driving a lot because we're in Texas. We drive all the time. And if you're married to somebody like my husband, he talks about it. And so do I. So um, anyway, it says children of a minimum of 10 years old, in some instances, are allowed to use bikes or pedal-powered cars to drive around and, you know, use traffic laws, which actually sounds fun. And I think I remember reading about a park that was similar to that in Japan in Matthew Amster Burton's Pretty Good Number One, An American Family Eats Tokyo, which I told you about before. So, the only other thing that struck me was the great pleasure they had at the water park and going down the water slide, and that made me remember in the 1980s when water parks first came to this country and none of us could believe how much fun they were. They popped up everywhere and they were a brand new thing. Oh my gosh, it was almost like in that book. You just could not believe how great it was like a roller coaster, but so much more accessible and so much less liable to give you motion sickness. If like me, you have motion sickness. So next time on to Denmark, which should be very interesting and loaded with Hans Christian Andersen. In other news, later this week, if you're interested, Scott and I will be talking about a Christmas movie over at A Good Story is Hard to Find podcast, He went for a real classic, It's a Wonderful Life, and I'm really looking forward to talking about it. I hadn't watched it in so long. And as always, when you're thinking about talking about something, you suddenly notice things and think about it a little bit differently. So it was really fun watching it with that in mind. At Craftlit, Heather recently began Her Land, and It's a bit off-putting to somebody like me at first because it's always talked about as being a classic piece of feminist literature from 1915. And I'm thinking, I'm as bad as a guy that way, I guess. But, oh, what a bore. Except for the fact that what it is so far is a lost world novel. And I love those, you know, where all of a sudden you're in the jungle and the natives all say, oh, these kind of crazy weird things go on over here, this place that no one can get to unless you have an airplane, unless you find the secret tunnel that leads into it, etc. And then your adventure begins with dinosaurs or a land completely populated only by women. So far, I'm really enjoying it and I can recommend it. We're three chapters in, so we'll see how it goes. And I guess that's all for right now. Rose comes home on Saturday, getting ready for Christmas. So that'll be a week of Christmas time. So there will probably be another long gap before we have another episode of this. So I guess that helps justify the fact that it's super long. (laughs) And in fact, I am getting ready to go wrap presents because I have some that have to go to Germany for my brother and sister-in-law. I have some going to Florida and all around the country. And, oh my gosh, we're down to the wire. Well, the German ones will probably miss, but they're probably used to that by now. But anyway, so I got to get out of here. But mentioning overseas made me remember one thing. I do want to mention that we have a listener in England who, when she heard I did not know what Horlicks was, ran out, got some, and it is winging its way to me right now so I can give you a report. Now, is that a fan or what? 
She was so nice. So Julie Sanderson, thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to it, and we will definitely have a report. If anyone else would like to send me an email about Horlicks or anything up to and including my terrible pronunciation, keeping in mind that I've already mentioned I know about it, you can contact me at julie at glyphnet.com, G-L-Y-P-H-N-E-T.com. You can leave a comment at the blog, hcforgottenclassics.blogspot.com. You can leave me a review at iTunes, just because I like to see the reviews. And last but not least, as you know, thank you for listening. I really have a blast reading this, and I definitely would not be doing that if it wasn't for you coming by to listen. So thank you very much. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, or whatever other holiday you may celebrate at this time of year. Appropriate greetings to all and best wishes. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.